Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Welcome. Lovely to have you all here. My name is Tracy Locke, I'm the Curator of Australian Art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia and also the curator of this exhibition. It's such a thrill to have you all here because you can imagine going into this project with some of the issues with the pandemic. We weren't sure of how many of you we could have in this space. So it's a thrill and wonderful to think um, you're all here to join us for this talk. So welcome and thank you all so much for showing interest in this wonderful project. And so to begin with, I welcome you to Clarice Beckett, The Present Moment. And as you all know, the exhibition has only just opened on, uh, to the public on Saturday. And I have to say it's been a little bit of a wild ride uh, for me and assembling the exhibition and it's been a very busy week. I've literally just got off the phone to the Sydney Morning Herald who wanted to speak to me for an hour and a half. The interest in this project and the story is extraordinary. And so forgive me if I start to lose my voice, but I feel like I've been talking non-stop for a week. But I'm really happy to be here and, and of course speak with you today. I'm still not sure, I was just talking to our senior curator, I'm not sure what I'm going to say, but um, there's so much to say. I guess just to recap, perhaps do a very brief summary, of course, Clarice Beckett was an artist that was based in Melbourne and working in the 1920s and 1930s. And she is known for producing oil paintings that depicted incidental everyday subject. And she painted most of these subjects within an easy distance of her family home at Beaumaris. Uh, and she would often walk around about a radius of up to five kilometers as, as she went about her, her painting process. Her works in terms of Australian art history are very distinctive because they have this appearance of looking very soft and very hazy and very, very ethereal. You will see that many of them are quite small. So she never painted grand scale canvases, all quite small because most of the works, not all of them, most of them were produced on the spot. And so the boards and the panels had to be portable. As many of you know, she also, being an outdoor painter, created and built her own little uh, portable easel. And she would pull her easel, she, she constructed it so that it was on wheels and uh, she could pull her cart around Beaumaris. So she's important to us uh, or is known for these very ethereal, hazy subjects, but she's also become very important to us because of the story associated with her art and life. And she has a story that is linked to this sense of um, neglect and then rediscovery. And her story of... Uh, Neglect and rediscovery is quite remarkable in the story of Australian art history. So when Clarice was working and living and exhibiting her work, she exhibited her work for a, across a 16-year period and for 10 years straight she staged solo exhibitions. 
Throughout this time, certainly in, in the newspapers and so forth, she was very much criticised for her work, for the, for the sort of incidental nature of it. She did have a series of close supporters, but generally some of the um, reviews in the newspapers were crushing, really very critical. Uh, then, of course, Clarice Beckett, um, as we all know, she very much was interested in capturing the sort of veils of light as they fell across nature. And she was very interested in being there on the spot, but she actually surrendered to the sensory effects of nature to such a level during her painting process that she became fully immersed in that process to the point that it brought about her demise. So she was painting one night out in a storm and she was soaked to the bone. And within a few days she died of double pneumonia. She was 48 years of age and that was 1935. Her family misunderstood her and her practice. And soon after she died, some of her best and most experimental works were burnt on a bonfire by her father. Other works that remained were stored by the family in an open-sided shed in rural Victoria. About 2,000 canvases were stored in that shed. They remained there for over 30 years, untouched, but open to the elements and open to the possums and the vermin and so forth. Then steps into the story a woman by the name of Rosalind Hollenrake. In 1965, Rosalind Hollenrake was associated with, let's say, a very interesting group of Australian artists and actors and performers. And she was visiting somebody's house in Melbourne. It was a private home. It had a collection of Charles uh, Blackman's and Arthur Boyd paintings and so forth. And she was walking through and looking at these works and she became completely struck by two works on the wall, a seascape and a landscape. One of the works was signed C. Beckett. And she asked the owner of this private collection about this, who is this artist? And the owner did not know anything about the artist at all. He had inherited the works. And so there began this quest of Rosalind Hollenrake to find out who this C. Beckett is. The quest took her to her life and she spent time in London and of course in London she asked Sidney Nolan, Sidney, do you know anything about this C. Beckett, anything at all? And he said, no, no, I don't know the artist, I'm sure that they're American. Um, then we fast forward to 1970 and Ros Hollenrake opens up her own commercial gallery in a High Street Armadale in Melbourne. And Rosalind had a little column put in the local newspaper to highlight the fact that she was interested in promoting the work of forgotten artists or artists who had been overlooked. And in came through the door of her gallery one day a lady holding a bundle under her arm. And um, she came up to Ros and she said, I believe you're looking for works by sort of neglected artists and so forth. She said, yes, yes, I am. And the woman said, well, I may have something of interest to you. She didn't say who it was. She just unfolded the bundle and laid out these little panels and paintings in front of Rosalind Hollenrake. And Ros instantly said, 
it's C. Beckett. And the woman said, that's right, how did you know? And um, Ros asked the woman, well, how, what do you know about this artist? Tell me about her. And the woman said, well, she was my sister. So it was Hilda who came through uh, Roz's gallery to show Roz these works. And Hilda was very nervous. I was only talking to Roz yesterday again about this. And Hilda was very much testing Roz. Hilda did not want to mention immediately to Roz about the association of Clarice Beckett and Max Meldrum. So this is 1970. Max Meldrum had died in 1955. And to this day, I can assure you, there is still a stigma attached to Max Meldrum. So anyway, Roz obviously embraced the works and in 24 hours of that visit to Roz's gallery, they were all in a car and travelling up to the family home to look at more works by this C. Beckett. But to Roz's, um, I guess, sense of sadness, as they visited the family home, they looked at works by C. Beckett, but that, that's when they also discovered the majority of the works were being stored in the shed outside. Because Beckett also painted on stretched canvas, the majority of those 2,000 canvases, were a lot of them were on canvas, and they didn't survive. So Ros rescued around 370 of those 2,000 canvases. And then she staged the exhibition, the groundbreaking exhibition in 1971. And she started the move and the campaign on promoting the work of Clarice Beckett. So it's quite a remarkable story. And in fact, I stand here before you today and as you move through this whole exhibition, to this day, we still actually don't know very much about Clarice Beckett. Rosalind Hollenrake completed her PhD on Clarice Beckett in 2017 and her thesis. And yet again, there is still an enigma and a mystery surrounding Clarice Beckett. And it seems there's just this series of drama and events that have evolved associated with Clarice Beckett that makes it like a sheer miracle that we do today have these works before us. So there are no letters, there are no journals, there are no ledgers for any of us to work with. And Rosalind has, she's, Rosalind Hollenrake today is 83, and she has non-stop spent her whole life trying to track information about Clarice Beckett. I said the other day in, in one of my talks that even though there are no diaries and no information, when we look around the room here, I've decided that these works are themselves like daily records. They are daily notes of her, the world around her. I guess what is important to know is that there is only one published statement, known statement by the artist, and she talks about wanting to explore nature and capture the charm and light of nature, but also to present uh, a truthful illusion of reality. But what I have been trying to make clear in this exhibition and perhaps suggest to people that exactly what form of reality was she really talking about? Because a lot of her works, if you hold your gaze on a number of them, 
Uh, they are slow paintings, so you do need to spend a lot of time with them. As I indicated earlier, they are tonalist paintings. She studied with Max Meldrum. And they take a little while to come into focus and into form. Even just now, looking from a distance at her masterwork, Sandringham Beach. Um, on one level, when you glance at that, it looks like it's very flat and about pattern, but when you hold your gaze, you see that it actually has an incredible sense of space and depth to it. And so for me, a lot of her work is operating on two levels, the everyday, the immediate, the earthbound, but also the transcendent. She was very interested in capturing a sense of depth and space. Uh, and to the point, uh, I might point out, on the back of this blue wall here, as you walk in, is a beautiful landscape. And if you do spend time with that one in particular, you feel as though you are literally walking around in the space with her. So the works have a sense of aliveness and they have a sense of energy to them where she certainly feels uh, as though she, her presence is, is still there. If that's too sort of spooky and out there for you, that's okay. Uh, I've also been in dialogue with Professor Ian North and having conversations with him, and he said to me only the other night that we're now using a language in Australian art history we weren't really allowed to use even five years ago. So a lot of what I'm touching on and talking about here is a very new interpretation of Clarice Beckett's work. But perhaps what I will do, I'll do a couple of things, just talk because you're sitting and looking at this particular wall, is talk about the fact that there was a myth that Clarice Becker only painted in the very early hours and in the evening because she, she had to look after her elderly parents. Rubbish, that's not quite true. She painted all throughout the course of the day. She was very interested in all levels of light and in particular bright daylight. And you can see what she does when she's outside in the bright daylight is she starts to use a lot more bold colour. When you're in bright light, all form is sharpened. And so to capture a sense of depth and so forth, she starts to use bright colour and she starts to break up the form and create almost a pattern across her composition. This one I absolutely love with this tangerine orange umbrella. If you look closely at the work, you'll see that all the edges, there are no edges in nature, as her teacher used to say. The edges are blurred. She starts to blur form and you get this vibrating, intense optical effect. And so you can feel the pulsing heat here at the beach. And I love this because under that umbrella is a woman reclining in the cool of the shade. This one too, again, she's using repeat pattern, colour, breaking up form, but all at the same time with just a tiny brush stroke sometimes. A big game of beach cricket here. People on horseback and here. Sensational. An ethereal, twisty, everyday tea tree branch she puts right in the middle of the composition. She breaks all compositional rules and there's a, a, a reason behind that. But I think what else I would like to talk to you a little bit about today um, and indulge uh, the teacher Max Meldrum uh, was very influential on her work 
And he's very much become, you won't see or read much about him in any of the texts and so forth here in the exhibition because it's about Clarice Beckett, it's not about Max Meldrum. But what I will do is just talk a little bit about his methods that she learnt from him because they're playing out here in front of us and they were radical. So she studied for three years at the National Gallery School with Frederick McCuppin. And for those three years she studied drawing. She was invited to do another year of study under Bernard Hall, who painted in a way that was kind of conservative and a bit stuffy, you know, very traditional. And she declined that offer because she wanted to go and study with Max Meldrum, who'd set up his own private school in Elizabeth Street in Melbourne. And now what's really interesting about that is Max Meldrum had actually been a star student of the National Gallery School. He won a scholarship and he spent 12 years living and working in France. He lobbed back into Melbourne in 1911 and he found it the most parochial art world ever and was very shocked but while he'd been in France and working in Paris he'd worked up some theories and ideas on how to represent reality and he came up with his own treaty and theory and so he was talking about these ideas in a series of lectures in Melbourne that Clarice Beckett attended and so she thought she would go and study with him in his new art school. Now she did do that, but her mother, Clarice Beckett's mother, had to go and check this controversial man out first. And she met with uh, Mr Meldrum and she came away with the impression that he was in fact a gentleman. And indeed he was, but he was a very provocative character. And he had very strong... Uh, what's the word? He could, he could argue with people very, very well. He was a very short, small Scotsman, very talented. And so what he ended up doing was actually shaking up the entire Melbourne art world to the point where he became so disliked, someone went into the National Gallery of Australia's collection and saw his work on display and took a penknife to it. So there, was, there became this kind of newspaper war because when he set up his art school in Elizabeth Street, in a very short amount of time, all of the best and brightest students at the National Gallery School started swinging over to his art school and he shook up the establishment. People like Baldwin Spencer, the power brokers of the art world in Melbourne, came out saying that Max Meldrum is a, just a conceited megalomaniac. However, Max Meldrum held up, but what, why were they jumping ship and going over to study with him? Because he came up with a method of teaching that was revolutionary, and that teaching process of painting involved no drawing whatsoever. So artists were taught to paint and they were able to create a fantastic painting in a really short amount of time. And these are students that are labouring year after year at the National Gallery School, doing their plaster busts and painting and struggling. There they are under Meldrum, hitting out these amazing works very quickly, no underdrawing. He came up with this idea that what, and all of his ideas, he was a free thinker, he was a pacifist, he's fabulous to read about. But he came up with this idea that students, painters, are to take a focal point, stand somewhere, 
look at your subject and you glimpse at your subject with blurred eyes. And as you're glimpsing, you're taking in the information onto your retina, all of the most largest areas of light and dark. And then you turn to your canvas and you get your paint, no drawing, your paint, and apply in those areas that you remember all the lights and the darks. Then you go back to your focal point, stand in front of your subject, blur your eyes, take in the impression, go back to your canvas, and you work your image up in that way, a very quick, rapid way, but the results were staggering. So big fights broke out in the art world in, in Melbourne, and if you, you were either with Meldrum or you were against him. Now, Clarice Beckett only studied with him for nine months. Ten years later, she was criticised in the newspapers for why doesn't Clarice Beckett shake off a little meldrum and get out into the sunlight? And 14 years later, 14 years after studying with him for only nine months, she was accused of being a new and dangerous variety of meldramite. Okay, so she painted so beautifully and so well and yet she carried this stigma all the time. But importantly, she was able to absorb his technique of painting very quickly. He really taught his students how to sharpen their observational skills. There is no major modern Australian artist of the period who did not go through a Meldrum moment. He published a book in 1919. That book went straight to Sydney. And I can tell you through diary notes from Lloyd Rees that in those circles in, in Sydney with Roy DeMeister, Roland Wakelin, Lloyd Rees, all of them, Grace Cossington-Smith, were flipping through his book and, and were completely absorbed with his ideas. They were revolutionary. So just like Metzinger and Glaze writing a treaty on cubism in 1912, there's Meldrum in Australia coming up with a treaty on, on painting as well. Same thing, very French, very revolutionary. So the book was circulating, and of course, Clarice would have known the book, taught with him, but again, I come back to the point. He tra trained her very well to observe, and she took his ideas, and this way of painting where, through the sheer economy of the process, all of the details in the picture are emptied out. You can see, we know that this is a figure walking on the beach, but how do we know that? It's only a touches of paint. But the impression it gives is that there is a fully formed figure there. If you look at our Charles Condor of Holi um, Holiday at Mentone, same beach, you can see the little ribbons on the lady's dress and the little umbrella and all the little details and the spines in the umbrella, the seaweed on the beach, wrong. Well, it's right, but it's wrong. But what I'm saying is same view, same thing, but... Beckett's approach and the painting approach meant all those details were emptied out because, as Meldrum said, don't paint what you know. Paint what you see, what comes into your eye and let it go, let everything else go. Beckett would have known, for example, you know, there were details perhaps on this woman's clothing and all the details were there and there would have been seaweed on the beach. She left it all out. So the appearance of her work is quite... Her, her works are very abbreviated. 
And so therefore that makes her very important to Australian art history because she was producing these works that appeared very simplified and very simple, almost abstract. Her most abstract works, as I, as I mentioned earlier, her, her most abstract works were burnt by her father. So we, what we see here today is 130 works. There's about 700 works, we think, still surviving. Now, we'll never, ever know her full story, her full output. The Streeton exhibition has just opened, just closed, sorry, in Sydney recently. Oh, we know everything about Streeton. You know, all the catalogues, all the diary notes, this letter, that letter, we know where he was, what was he feeling on the day, everything. Okay, it's all there. With Beckett, we know where all his works are. Beckett, it's a mystery. We don't know, we never know her full power. And she, her, as I say, her most progressive works where she distills out almost all the information, there's only a few of those examples that remain. Two of them are in the sunset room in the next space. So they're very, very, very precious. As are her series of works she produced in 1926 at Naringal. The kitchen space is here because Clarice Beckett never had her own painting studio. When the family moved to Beau Morris in 1919, her father retired as a bank manager and they designed their new home. And she asked if she could please have a studio uh, accommodated in the architectural plans. And the father responded, no, the kitchen table would do. So in 1926, she had a rare opportunity of having her own studio for six months and she stayed at a friend's sheep station in the Western District of Victoria, produced an incredible body of work. And we have three examples from that six-month period in the exhibition, again in the sunset space. But the family who were looking after her at the, at the sheep station at that time, they acquired a lot of the works that she produced in that six-month period and they all burnt in a fire in 1944. So again, we only see little fragments of what remains. What I will point out on that note and that series of Naringal works is this work here on the back wall, uh, the larger work, which is an elevated view of, of the beach rooftops. Uh, that was bought by Fred Williams in 1979. Now, when Rosalind staged her first Clarice Beckett exhibition in 1971, I had the great pleasure of speaking with uh, Fred Williams's widow, Lynn Williams, on the phone to just give me an insight into that moment in 1971 in Melbourne with the Beckett show opening. She responded by saying, well, Ros Hollenrake, you know, she's trying to promote the work of Beckett. She said she was very insistent. But what Roz did is she called in all the key figures in the Australian art world to come in and see that exhibition. And among those figures in 1971 was Fred Williams. And when he first saw Clarice Beckett's work, he said, she beat me to it. And then Lynn very kindly sent me Fred Williams's diary notes of the very, from the night, written in the night of the first day he saw Clarice Beckett's exhibition. And he wrote that it was an absolute surprise. And she was very ahead of her time. So, you know, these are the sort of little gems of information that we do have where people who are very skilled and looking really could understand her work, but she was not understood 
during her lifetime, unfortunately. But I will just finish by talking about the work on this back wall that is beautifully lit. And it's a work called Beach Scene. I call it the kind of melting moment in the space because um, just let's just go back to what I was saying firstly. I will talk about this work, but just firstly about the Meldrum method of painting. What you will find is all of these paintings are designed to be viewed from a distance. So the closer you move up to Clarice Beckett's paintings, the more meaningless the the surface becomes, it dissolves away. In a little minute when I finish here, I would encourage you to go up closely and look at this little beach scene melting moment and you will see exactly what I'm talking about. The closer you go, the more it falls apart. But I'm drawing your eye to this particular work because it's also a wonderful example of the way that she would create this tonal effect and create the distance in the horizon. But you'll notice how soft it is. It's so soft. The tones just melt from one into the other. When you do go up close and have a look at it, you will also notice a kind of stipple texture on the surface of the painting. That is because in this painting and many others in the space, Clarice Beckett has painted on something called Canadian beaverboard. And it was a, um, a building material that was shipped around the world. It was a very stable material and it was also very cheap. Clarice Beckett was supported by a family stipend. She never worked, unmarried, but she had a small amount of money, but she had to be very improvisational with her artist supplies. So this work gives this incredible, beautiful stippled effect, and again, it's because of the beaver board. On the back of this board, it's stamped, you know, in French, uh, Canadian beaver board. Um, and many of the other works have great amounts of information on the back of them. Many of them, to this day, have a white chalk A, B or C. And they have that marking because sometimes Clarice would take her works back to Max Meldrum to discuss her tonal values. And he would mark her paintings on the back, A, B or C, depending on the quality of the, the tonal values. So again, the backs of, because we know not much other information, these sort of inscriptions and details and her building, her artist materials are really important pieces of information to us. So I'll just swing you back to, to me if you like. Um, I will point out another little wonderful work in the exhibition in the kitchen space. It's in a little lit box in the side of the wall uh, with a mirror back. And again, if you look closely at what's reflected in the mirror, you can see that she's painted this sunset subject on the back of a Kellogg's cornflakes box. Okay, but also just to point out that Works such as this and others on board were more able to survive that period of being in the open-sided shed. The canvases were more susceptible to deteriorating. Um, so many works on board, more works on board have survived. And um, I guess, you know, it's just 
these are just for us as curators and historians working on her little tiny traces of information that she's, she's really left us. So materials were not easily uh, sourced for her and she did tend to improvise. Um, and I think the final point to make is that little work we were just looking at, the sort of melting moment we were just looking at, is one of a few works that you'll see throughout the space with a credit line that mentions Maud Rowe. And it's important to note that when Ros staged the 1971 exhibition and eight paintings from that exhibition were bought by Canberra, and that was really the start of repositioning her back into Australian art history, but she had a very, very close friend called Maud Rowe. And when Maud Rowe passed away in 1937, Maud bequeathed her Clarice Beckett's to the Benalla Gallery and the Ballarat Art Gallery. And so some members of the public were able to see, and I guess Clarice Beckett's work was becoming more visible on public walls from 1937, but really, truly not until much later from the 1970s on. So that little illuminated work was actually a work that had been bought by Maud Rowe, her, her friend, and then later bequeathed. So I guess what I think I will do is stop at that point, because it's probably been more than enough, but I'm very happy to answer questions because I'm sure there's some things I've missed or you may be curious about. They would, you wouldn't describe it as necessarily selling well. Uh, they, we know that they did sell, but not a lot. And again, I would love to have a ledger of some kind to tell you. Even with, she staged 10 solo exhibitions, one catalogue remains from those exhibitions. So we don't know, for example, Shane, what, what works were in those exhibitions, therefore can we trace them and track them and see what's sold. Certainly things did sell, but she was not surviving off of the income of her paintings it, by any means. It's a complex thing, isn't it, family? And <laughs> because he certainly supported her and her interest in art, but we must remember this is a period in time where the heroes of the art world and landscape painting were Hans Heysen, Elliot Gruner, Streeton. They were the, making those hero statements about the nation. And being a man and her father, you know, he must have thought, well, Clarice, you're not really painting what these people are doing and I don't really understand what you're doing. And to be fair, it seems he only destroyed the works where, you know, they were very minimal. So some of the works in this experiment, like October Morning and Across the Yarra in the other room, we know came out of the shed. So they survived. Um, so it's only the very extreme images. He really didn't understand her, her, her extreme work very well. Yes. I guess one other point to make is as we were working on the exhibition, or I was working on the exhibition and the catalogue, we had hoped to publish Ros Hollenreich's biography. So, you know, it made perfect sense. Unfortunately, Ros had not been very well last year, and uh, so I took on the role for writing, and she was able to send me some pieces of new information. But what is really fascinating is how many years it does take for information to come through. For example, it was only very, very recently that Rosalind Hollenrake found out Ros had always been told Clarice had an older brother who died in infancy. 
No. She's just found out the older brother had, was microcephalic, um, so was very disabled, and he lived until he was 17. But the family had him in a, an asylum, and we do know that Clarice had a lovely relationship with her older brother, but it was something that was, went to the grave. Um, and, and certainly Clarice herself, you know, she had many relationships. She was very much, she declined many marriage um, proposals and she fell in love many times. One of her love interests is in this first morning room. Um, so the sense of family disapprovals and secrets and, and so forth uh, are kind of wrapped up in this really intriguing story as well. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you.